I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Big Books and Bold Ideas, my Friday book show. It's good to have you listening. In the depth of an illness that had yet to be named, writer Megan O'Rourke gathered her writing journals to discard them, checked on who would inherit her things, and became convinced that she would never feel healthy or well again. I once had ambition and yearned to write, she remembered. Now I only wanted the pain and fog to lift. It finally did, but it took years of despair and doctor's visits and determined detection of her own disease. Ms. O'Rourke writes in her new book, Above all, I wanted recognition of the reality of my experience, a sense that others saw it. Megan O'Rourke's new book is titled The Invisible Kingdom, Reimagining Chronic Illness. And she joins us this morning from New Haven, Connecticut. Megan, welcome to the show. It's good to have you here. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. I thought we might return to those days in January of 2014. You've tried many, many doctors and treatments, and you've begun to contemplate a life where where you never will feel completely well. And you write about this desolation of your suffering not really being recognized or seen. You say that that recognition that others saw what was happening was missing. Explain why that had become so essential, that, that this be recognized and seen. Yeah, it's a really important question. And I think I spent the entire book trying to figure out exactly why I did I need my illness to be validated and recognized. And I think the fundamental answer that I and so many other people feel this way is that without that recognition and validation, your suffering is almost meaningless, right? Or it's rendered meaningless by society's unwillingness to see it, by medical science's unwillingness to see it. It robs you of the possibility, of course, that you might get answers, that you might get treatment, that you might get better. But it also robs you of your very being, of the dignity of your suffering and the reality that you're experiencing that no one seems able to see or maybe willing to see. And that is a profound loneliness. It's an invisibility on top of suffering. And it was that invisibility that really almost killed me. So did you feel that, you know, the quality of that lack of recognition was the same in, let, let's say, your circle of friends as it was in some of the physicians that you were seeing? I mean, were there differing levels of, but this has gone on so long, how can it be real? Mm. Yeah, I, I was, I think, lucky in that I had a few friends who really fully credited what was happening to me. And my partner was really supportive. But at the same time, we all live in a language-based world, right, where we communicate to one another. I mean, that's one of the fundamental things that make us human. And so I think in the absence of any framework to communicate that disease, even those friends who were supportive 
it was vague to them, right? Um, there was no language for it. And there was no occasion for me to try to explain what was going on, right? You as a sick person don't want to go around every day saying, well, I'm still sick today. right? <laughs> so I think without some kind of framework or understanding or the treatment, it, it makes the disease even more static and hard to see and hard to talk about than if you have some, you know, again, label, name, word for it. I want to talk about how the healthcare system responded to this and what your experience is. But I've wondered if when you would see a new doctor and they realized that you had been to a lot of other doctors, whether that whether you sense that that level of skepticism or judgment increased the deeper you went into the healthcare system. Yeah, it absolutely did. And it was one of the great paradoxes of the experience for me. Um, and something that in my reporting, I talked to nearly 100 other patients, I heard from other people too, that the more you seem to gather information about your condition or possible answers, the more you listed your symptoms, the more you brought medical records from one doctor to another, the more often doctors kind of looked at you funny, right? And this didn't always happen. I had a couple of great doctors who really wanted to see all my medical records. But I learned early on as a patient not to tell the doctor everything that was going on, <laughs> to pick and choose the symptoms, right? To make sure that it was clear I was soliciting their authority. Uh, because to do otherwise was very quickly to invite a kind of dismissal and anxiety on the part of the doctor who began, I could very clearly see in their eyes, like a glaze come over as I said, well, this has been happening and this, this is what I've learned. And that it was like, boop, the door shut, right? This is a problem patient. I don't, I don't want to deal with this person or this person is a hypochondriac, right? So it was a weird catch 22. Yeah, that is weird because you were in some ways the exemplar of the involved patient who is trying to take control of her health care. This is something that the health care system tells us they want, right? Patients right. who are involved in their own care and involved in making decisions. But it seemed that when you walked in the door and doctors saw the stack of medical records, what, what a kind of well, what am I, I? I don't know. Was it a malaise? What is? Was it a? If they can't solve it, how the heck do you expect me to solve it? I, I want to understand that better. What What was that like? Yeah. What was the experience like? Yeah, I think there's a whole kind of a apparatus that the doctor, you know, a kind of intellectual apparatus, an emotional apparatus that the doctor comes to the exam room with, and a mm -hmm. whole critical apparatus that the patient comes to the exam room with. And that has to do on, with medical education, history of medicine, history of gender bias. But basically, I think that when the doctor sees a patient come in with a stack of medical records and a lot to say, there's an almost unconscious response that's pre-intellectual, right? That's, this is going to cause problems. This person is going to cause problems one way or another, maybe just because these doctors are so strapped for time, right? It's the system mm -hmm. that's the problem, not necessarily the individual doctors, but they've got maybe 15 minutes to help you. And they've got a million demands on them and bureaucratic paperwork to fill out. And they're not going to be able to solve your problem in those 15 to 20 minutes. And they know it. And so I think there's a reflexive disconnection 
right? Because it probably makes it easier for them. And I think there probably are patients whose stories, and I was one of them, whose stories are chaotic and elaborate and complicated and demanding, demand a lot of attention. And it's really hard to sit there and listen to it and think, I can't help this person. So I think instead there's a, a disengagement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You write in in a chapter that's titled Impersonation. One of the hardest things about being ill with a poorly understood disease is that most people find what you're going through incomprehensible if they even believe you are going through it. I want to talk about what this meant for your partner and your circle of friends, but it it also sounds that the very people who should be comprehending these mm-hmm. physicians that you were seeing also suffered a bit from this it's incomprehensible. I can't grasp everything that this patient is coming to me with. Did, did you see that? I did see that. You know, I, wow. in the end, ended up with multiple diagnoses. So clearly my case was really complicated. And it roamed, you know, my symptoms roamed around the body. There weren't just neurological symptoms. There were neurological and rheumatological symptoms. So I posed a kind of problem to our healthcare system, which is very siloed because no one doctor could really step back and look at the whole, right? In some ways I needed a kind of medical detective who didn't exist. I had to become that detective. Um, And so I think too, that what I realized along the way was that whatever was wrong with me, and at first I wasn't even sure if something was wrong, um, but as I got sicker, it became clear that whatever was wrong with me was something poorly understood. And that I happened to be someone whose body lived at the edge of medical knowledge. And that meant I was going to have a lot of problems getting answers. In addition to the fact, I think, that I was a young woman who otherwise seemed relatively fit. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that at one point, one of your friends asks, why does a diagnosis matter so much to you? In other words, (laughs) she's saying... Treat, I guess she's saying, treat the symptoms. What does it matter if you put a name on it? Yeah, it's so interesting. Diagnosis is really complicated, I think, if you are chronically ill or you have chronic pain, because I think all of us who are chronically ill know that the diagnosis is not the end of the journey, right? Um, It's a label and it's not the be all and end all of your disease. And so now, in a way, I'm much less focused on my diagnoses than I am on the reality of my days, my symptoms, my disease, which is its own thing. But Mm. when you lack a diagnosis at all, the the real problem for me was that I wasn't necessarily being believed, right? Doctors were suggesting, well, maybe you're just stressed or maybe it's anxiety. And because I was not visibly sick in any way, I didn't have any dramatic external symptoms. I looked okay most of the time it was really hard to make the reality of the disease legible to others. And so it was maybe less the diagnosis I needed and almost more the reality of the disease that I needed. (laughs) But the diagnosis was a shortcut there, right? To having others understand that I really was sick and that's why I had to cancel plans or couldn't always do things. Mm -hmm. So so I want to make this clear for listeners as we get into some of the details of what you were experiencing. When you say 
it isn't like you could see it from the outside. I mean, you weren't, there wasn't a physical manifestation, I guess. These symptoms were serious. I mean, you were Mm -hmm. having episodes of fevers and pain and I mean, I, I don't want our listeners to think, well, maybe what really was all in her head. So, <laughs> yeah. So maybe yeah. this is probably a good moment to talk about the onset of what turns out to be a cluster of diseases and how the symptoms seem to come on gradually and then suddenly. And, and you have this very powerful way of describing this. My body felt like a vow that had been irrevocably broken. What what is this that you you start to experience and then you realize you're kind of swamped by these symptoms? Yeah. yeah, it's it's not a tidy onset, right? It was a complicated, gradual process. I quote Hemingway talking about going broke and saying, you know, that one of his characters went broke gradually and then suddenly, um, and that's how I got sick. I in my early twenties, after graduating from college, had a really dramatic moment where I was walking down the street on my way to work on a beautiful day and feeling excited about my new job. And all of a sudden just was overcome with incredible stinging pain, little electric shocks all over my arms and legs that would move around and were extreme in severity. So much so that my legs started spasming and twitching and I had to stop and rub them to try to make the sensation go away. This happened periodically for the next months. Um, I began experiencing vertigo, fevers, um, extreme fatigue. Fatigue is almost not the word for it. It was more like cellular enervation, Um, drenching night sweats. I mean, so severe, I would have to change my clothes in the middle of the night like I had malaria or something. And all kinds of things, pain, torn cartilage in my joints, all kinds of sort of connective tissue problems, And the fact of it was that doctors would say nothing's really wrong, but each time they would say, hmm, we're seeing this funny result here, right? Or the next time, hmm, we're seeing a funny result there. And in fact, there were a lot of little things that were off on my labs, but they didn't add up to a clear-cut disease. So to your point, I mean, there really was a real set of diseases that later became very visible on labs, but because there wasn't one physician really digging in and ordering more tests and looking at that test and thinking about what it might mean. It just didn't get uncovered for a long time. Mm-hmm. You know, of everything that sounds terrible about these symptoms, that extreme, extreme exhaustion. And, and you know, we hear, and, and you write a bit about this, we hear about this in long COVID as well. It just, it's so it sounds like it's so immobilizing, so transformative. Your life goes from these are the things I do in a day to I do one thing and then I have to rest. Can you, can you describe just what, what that was like day to day when you were in the worst of it? Absolutely. And Carrie, I'm so glad to hear you say that because I think it's one of the hardest things to convey to someone who's never experienced it. And One thing I always ask people to imagine is the day you felt worse in your life, like maybe you had a flu where you were just beat and you really couldn't get out of bed without just wanting to lie back down. Imagine feeling that way every day and sometimes even worse, right? Mm. So what's really destabilizing about it is that 
you can't muscle through that, right? And in fact, a feature of it is that when you try to, you get even worse. Um, so for me, a day might be at the worst that I could walk around the block and that would take all my energy. Um, at the time I was teaching a writing class and I would have to take a train, teach the class um, and take a train home. And I really didn't want to give this up because A, it was income, B, it was part of my identity as a writer. It was something I loved doing. I'm very social. So I would force myself to do it. And what would happen would be that during class, I would slowly start losing language because the effort of thinking was making me sicker and sicker. And so I would be reduced to saying things like we were studying a beautiful poem about spring. And I would say, this is a poem about the season that comes after winter, you know, there are flowers <laughs> and my students would kind of look at me and it was just <laughs> awful. Right. Cause you just feel like, then you end up feeling like you're a fraud, you're impersonating yourself. Right. And you're kind of impersonating the person you once were. Um, and it's, it's really hard. It affects every aspect of your selfhood. And I would then go home and I would collapse. Someone would have to like wake me up and get me off the train because I would be so out of it. And I would then be in bed for days just from doing that, you know? Yeah, man. Uh, I'm Carrie Miller. You're listening to a conversation with Megan O'Rourke about her new uh, nonfiction book, The Invisible Kingdom, Reimagining Chronic Illness. This is why, Megan, I, I think your, your evoking of this invisible kingdom from the title is so potent because it seems like you lived a life where there is this separation between people who rise every day in pretty good health, they never have to think about it again through the day, and people for whom it really defines their existence. I mean, you you feel like it sounds like you were kind of a shadow of a life mm. you knew and a person you were. That's exactly right. That's what it felt like. I felt at some point I read in the book that I, I felt almost erased. Um, right, right. My, the things that had made me known to myself, that I loved literature, that I loved my friends, that I was very physical. I was an athlete for many years. Um, were kind of gone and my own self was gone. My own, uh, the energy that helps us be who we are was, was slowly, slowly, slowly fading. And I remember at one point when I was at my sickest, I was sitting on the couch and I just had this image of a pilot flame inside me. And I was like, that pilot flame is it's me and it's still there and it's holding on. And I somehow have to muster the energy to see some more doctors and try to get some more answers. But that was really, really tough, right? I really was a shadow of myself at that point. You know, what you, what you helped me understand is that people with chronic illness who have diagnoses, right, who can put a name to, the, to this experience, I, 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 for the first time I think I really understood what it means to have this vision of who you were and and desperately want to recapture that sense of who you were and feeling ever you know receding ever further from from i guess the essence of of your character and your life um you know i think we talk about and you speak to this we talk about chronic diseases 
Well, those people were dealing with that without really an understanding of just what you've described about identity. I, I guess I wonder who could you talk to about that? I mean, who really understood what this was like, this sense of a, an identity slipping away? Really, the only people who understood were other people dealing with some of the same problems. Um, and I met some of them online. And I met some other um, women, actually, who were trying to write books and make films. And just those brief interactions that we had, because they weren't many, since we were all <laughs> sort of depleted, um, really helped me, I think, not feel that this was all in my head, that somehow something was wrong with me and no one else, um, somehow helped that loneliness. I, I think in, for me, I'm, and for many of us, we're sort of built to be social, even if we're introverts. <laughs> and mm -hmm. so feeling that understanding is like the first step in hoping that, I don't know, you might build some new self as, as a chronically ill person. Um, and I think the title of the book comes from a, a moment where I had left a doctor's office feeling really brushed off and dismissed and just feeling incredible despair. Like who is going to help me? I, my life is ending, but I want to keep trying to live it. And I just would like some help. And I felt as alone as I'd ever felt. And in that moment, there was this incredible almost like flash went through my body where I thought, Oh my God, I am, absolutely not alone. I am one of millions of Americans who are going through this. I don't know them, but I know they're out there and I know they're experiencing this too. And I really had that image in that moment of this kind of invisible kingdom of people that needed to step forward and make ourselves known or had been trying to step forward and make ourselves known. Um, and that there might be comfort and consolation in that for me. You seem um, both hopeful and, I don't know, skeptical is the word, a little concerned <laughs> that with our understanding, and maybe the, maybe less understanding, just more recognition of what it means to have like long COVID, that maybe this invisible kingdom is becoming more visible. And yet what I'm seeing right now, it'd be interesting to hear your thoughts much less, you know, as the pandemic is waning for now, um, much less interest in people that are still dealing with the effects of having had COVID, who are in this long COVID situation. What do you see? I have to agree with you. You know, I finished the book a year ago, and I was a little more hopeful a year right. ago than I am now. Yeah. I, yes. That said, I do think there's still reason to be hopeful. And I think we, we just need to make it really clear that we're at an important juncture for the health of all the people who have long COVID. Um, we are witnessing and living through what could be a mass disabling event. There was just a study that came out that said 7% of all Americans have long COVID and 2.3% wow. oh are disabled which is an extraordinary figure if true. Now let's take it with, you know, there need to be more studies. That's an estimation, et cetera. But that's, those are extraordinary numbers. And so I, it is incumbent on us as a society to really think about the reality of these diseases and what they cost impossible lives lived 
right? I think one reason we look away is it just, A, it's so scary, right? Any of us could get long COVID. It's, there's no control over it. And if it hasn't happened to us, it's really hard to look at the suffering of others when you can't help them, right? I think that the generous interpretation here is that everyone's worn out and they just want to get back to life. And it requires something of us ethically, morally, energetically to look at other people's suffering. But, you know, I am an optimist and I'm a believer. And I think the case I want to make is, right, it does require that of us. We do need to do it. That's who we are. We, 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 we need to offer that ethical support, that financial, structural, social support. And we need to have a conversation about how to do it. And the first step is naming the problem and really looking at it clearly. You know, I'm really grateful that you were as candid and transparent and detailed about your your um, experience, I guess, with functional medicine. I mean, you went to a lot of different, you went to a lot of MDs, you went to a lot of, I guess, MDs who have also kind of moved into this functional medicine uh, orbit. And I want to talk a little bit about about what you what you encountered there. First, I want to talk about nutrition. I mean, monitoring what you ate became really consuming because you believed that your nutrition was linked to flare-ups of the illness. And I, I'm curious if, now that you've come out, in some ways on the other side, did that end up being true? And are you still very careful with what you eat? What, what do you think in the end the, the link was between nutrition mm. and your symptoms? Yeah, I absolutely, I think the the way I eat has changed forever. I mean, I, you know, get busy and I <laughs> start eating in sort of ways I know I shouldn't. But my case, it was really clear when I was most sick that anytime I ate, I felt much sicker. And by the way, this is not, I'm not alone in this. Um, I was reporting on the Center for Post-COVID Care at Mount Sinai, and they said one thing they were seeing in a lot of long-haul patients was that they had almost stopped eating because anytime they ate, they were getting really sick. And to simplify this, you know, I'm going to oversimplify what I'm about to say, but basically one way to think about this is a lot of these diseases that are driven in some sense by immunological problems or immune system and overdrive is you also get food sensitivities because your immune system and your microbiome are not functioning properly. The microbiome being that, you know, those organisms in our gut. So that's what brought me to functional medicine was that I could tell something about how I was eating was really not okay. And I had lost a lot of weight because I'd basically gotten down to eating broccoli and salmon <laughs> <laughs> those were the only things that were making me feel bad. And functional medicine really helped me identify the problems and kind of, you know, do things like take probiotics and figure out the most severe triggers in ways that allowed me to slowly start eating more foods again. But this is really complicated, right? And, you know, I was someone who as a young woman had sort of vague eating disorder, right? Like not eating enough or always thinking, you know, you should just be eating as I, you know, always wanted to be thin above all. And I would say mm -hmm. that what in a funny way was helpful to me was realizing that I had to eat to support my body and make it strong. And so this was this really profound shift in how I think about food and health uh, that has stayed with me. And I think in my case, absolutely was functional medicine was a crucial piece in my journey and really helping me understand 
like I just can't eat eggs. They make me really, really sick. Um, my body has a profound immune reaction to them. Not like an allergy where I'm going to die, but just a low level 24 hour immune reaction that makes me feel like I have a hangover. Right. And so that's something I just incorporate into my daily life now, but I miss it. I wish I could eat eggs. But I, I think that it's really hard. These kinds of lifestyle changes are really complicated and they touch on really other complicated areas of life and things like fat phobia that our culture has and things like eating disorders. And so it's, it's a really complicated piece of trying to support your body during chronic illness and pivoting from a kind of external idea of what the world wants from your body to a really clear internal idea of what's going to make you feel strong and able to be yourself. You know, the other thing that occurs to me is that, you know, having to be so cognizant of your nutrition really, I would think, splashes over into, you know, your social situations, right? Other parts of your life. This must be something that in the back of your mind, dinner out with friends, are there eggs in, you know, you're you're constantly kind of... Yeah, having to overlay this nutrition yeah. thing over a lot of your interactions. Yeah, and it's not just nutrition. There's so many. Th- I was just talking about this with a friend who's chronically ill that, you know, so many of us who live with complicated conditions have to manage our lives really carefully, right? Like, mm-hmm. as you say, when I go to dinner, I'm like, am I going to accidentally eat eggs or gluten is another one for me. I'm, it makes me really sick. Um, also, just like dusty houses makes me really sick. So you're living this life. And I, yeah. And I, and I realized that I think my father in particular always thought of me as being sort of neurotic, right. Or kind of controlling or rigid, but, (laughs) and I was talking about this with the right, a number of friends that we all feel that we can tell there are people in our lives where like that person is very rigid. But what I really want to make clear is that it's survival, right? You're trying to live your life and be yourself. And it's just that we have to live it by avoiding certain triggers to really stay well. Um, but you're absolutely right. It affects everything. And when you're in your twenties or your thirties and you're that person who can't mm-hmm. go have an extra drink or you can't, you know, eat, eat, you know, eat at the pizza place with your friends, the great new pizza place, it feels, it can feel really isolating and hard for sure. Yeah. So as we talk about functional medicine, maybe we ought to define it because uh, there's yeah. a lot of kind of new reporting and attention to it. How would you define what it is? Yeah. So functional medicine, as I understand it, is medicine that takes the whole body into account and the functioning of the whole body and is interested in searching for the root cause of problems and looking at the ways in which symptoms and systems are entangled. So if the Western medicine, if the Western medical system operates almost on this kind of car repair model, right? Like you take the car to the shop and they're like, yeah, the carburetor needs to be fixed. Right. Functional medicine is more like, how is the carburetor relating to the, I don't know, I don't know anything about cars, right? Is the brake pads. <laughs> so our bodies are much more interrelated than car parts are, right? Um, and functional medicine really is interested in supporting the whole body and looking at lifestyle and changes. And also, I should say quickly, using all the tools of Western medicine, but also adding potentially the tools of other modalities like acupuncture or meditation 
So using a, a whole toolkit to help support the body, not just Western medicine. So one of the, it sounds like you've emerged with much more from, from this experience in functional medicine with much more awareness of that interconnectability that you've just described and awareness of what your own body needs. I'm thinking of one of the, I think he was an MD, this Dr. G who ended up putting you on an ozone drip. You had vitamin drips. You had lots of blood analysis. And that's why I said I I was grateful that you were as candid about (laughs) kind of the, right, the center of the functional medicine experience and then the fringes of it. I think what's really complicated for so many people is that it's really clear in Western medicine what this, the standard of evaluation is, right? The standard of evaluation is evidence-based medicine is, you know, does this procedure work? It's been studied many times. Does it work across many people's bodies? But since the whole premise of functional medicine is to treat the body as more individual and to really look at the ways in which an illness, a pathogen, a virus might intersect with your own biography as well as your biology, it's much harder to evaluate, right? It's much harder to know, is this supplement I'm being recommended really going to help me? Or am I just money on something useless? Is this functional doctor really going to, in a rigorous way, get to the bottom of what's wrong with me? Or are they trading on you know, my desperate need to find answers to sell me a lot of supplements, right? And so I did try to really in a complicated way, a nuanced way, I hope in the book, convey all of those concerns I had and also the range of experiences I had, you which, did. you know, as I've, yeah. as I, yeah. And as I've already said, functional medicine was crucial to my well-being and my journey, but I did see this guy who gave me an ozone drip, who just really freaked me out to use a technical term for it. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, he just kind of creeped me out. There was something about him that fell off. And he showed me a picture of this patient of his who'd been abused. It was really crossing the line in all kinds of ways. And I let him do this procedure because I was so desperate and I didn't know how to say no at that point. And I really regretted it, not even setting aside the question of ozone and how efficacious it is or not. It was a slightly dangerous procedure and I didn't trust the person doing it, right? And Mm -hmm. and that's one of the problems I wanted to point out, which is that patients are portrayed often as being credulous when we go to um, alternative medicine. You know, Western medicine really doesn't like it when you go to alternative medicine, generally speaking. But it's not credulousness, right? It's desperation. It's a need for answers. And it's a need for, I think, a framework in which we're treated like whole people again. Because when you're suffering, you do want to be seen as a whole, not as a array of car parts, right? You, you want someone who really cares. And I think the best of functional alternative medicine really grasps that. You know, so so I think that is what makes it difficult when you say, as a patient, I have to decide whether I'm just being sold a bunch of supplements and expensive tests. I don't, is there a way to do that today? It is, you know, if you're somebody who is looking for an answer and a a functional, you know, physician says to you, well, these six supplements are really going to make a difference and we'll keep looking. 
can see why that that feels um important yeah no and i um i had to try things out in a trial and error way i was a really uh, kind of fanatical journal keeper. I just kept lists of my symptoms. And actually one of the functional medical people I saw was one of the best. You could just tell that he was very rigorous because he would say, let's try one supplement and see what it does. Mm-hmm. You know, yes, I could give you six supplements and it might make you feel better, but let's really figure out what is helping and what is not helping you. And I loved that. I responded to that because I am a very evidence-based person. And I was like, right, this is going to be a slower path but I'm going to really know at the end of the day, which of these things is helping me. And I respected him for that. Right. But it's very hard to figure out in this murky area that is the edge of medical knowledge. How do we treat How do we treat patients? How do people make decisions about their care? How do you figure out what that supplement is that might really help you? You, you know, you need to build that trust relationship, I think with someone like the one that I saw where you're like, yes, this person and I are connecting and I trust him or her. I'm Carrie Miller and you're listening to Big Books and Bold Ideas, my Friday book show. And I'm in conversation with Megan O'Rourke. Her new book is The Invisible Kingdom, Reimagining Chronic Illness. So years into this, you see a physician who tells you that she thinks you have Lyme disease and you write, After 15 years in the dark, I at last had a possible name for my remaining problems. Yet instead of feeling relief, I felt I had woken into a nightmare. Could you describe seeing this physician, your skepticism that this is actually Lyme disease, and then what happens after that? Yeah. So at this point, yeah, I'm nearly 15 years into searching for answers. I have been diagnosed with endometriosis and an autoimmune disease in which my immune system was attacking my own body. Um, But I'm still sick, right? And being treated for those things isn't alleviating all my symptoms. So I went to see this infectious disease doctor who was extremely thorough. She was really wonderful. And she just tested me for everything under the sun, including Lyme disease. And strangely, I had never been tested for Lyme disease before this. Um, I think just as I saw her, I saw another doctor who also tested me for Lyme disease and that test came back negative. So I said to her, look, I just got this other test and it was negative. Uh, It seems like Lyme disease is a diagnosis you hear given to people who It's just given to them when we can't figure out what's wrong with them. That was my impression, my very kind of ignorant in some ways impression. And she said, look, you know, the Lyme testing is really unreliable in my experience. And she explained a bit about why that was. Um, It doesn't look for the presence of the disease itself. It looks for antibodies. And she said, I want to send your blood to a few different labs and see what they say. So she did. And when it came back, two of the labs had me positive for Lyme disease on part of the test because there's like three parts of the test and one of the labs had me negative. So I said, how on earth am I supposed to understand this? This is like really, really complicated. And she said, well, according to the CDC, you don't have Lyme disease, but I take a slightly more 
nuanced view because what I'm seeing in these tests are antibodies that are very specific to proteins in the Lyme bacteria. She says there's some other antibodies too that are less specific. She said, if you just had those, I don't think you'd have Lyme disease. But she said, I'm seeing these really, really specific markers of Lyme. The question is, what do we do? Because now you would have lived with it for 15 years and it's really hard to treat at that point. So there was a lot of wrestling in my mind about whether it would be worth taking antibiotics because even though I've just described being desperate, right, and trying all kinds of things, I also had really come to understand in my quest and my journey that because the body is so interrelated, you know, taking antibiotics when it's not necessary is not great, right? It can affect your microbiome and that affects your immune system. And all my symptoms were immunological. So I didn't really want to mess up my immune system more if I didn't have Lyme disease. But you know, it was really my husband who was like, look, it seems like you have a credible case here that you have Lyme disease. I'd grown up, you know, hiking and camping. My mother had picked ticks off me as a teenager and kid. And, you know, no question I'd been bitten by ticks. And uh, so my husband was really instrumental in just saying, look, you've, you've taken ozone. <laughs> just take some antibiotics. It's a plausible <laughs> case you have it. <laughs> Let's try it out. And you'll know quickly if it's helping, which is, in fact, what happened. I took antibiotics. And within a week, I knew that the doctor was right. And I did have Lyme disease. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Because I was so much I mean, better. Yeah. What, yeah. If, what if – so – there were no physicians in the early years of going to all these doctors who had said, and, and doing all these tests who had said, and we're going to throw in Lyme disease. Or, or do you think it wouldn't have mattered because, as you point out, this doctor was really knowledgeable about it and was looking for things other than just the yes, you have it, no, you don't kind of markers. What kind of a yeah. difference do you think it might have made? I think it only would have made a difference if I tested positive for it. And yeah. it's just not clear whether I would have, because I think if, I think if what would have made a difference is many people who are bitten by ticks, most people, those not all by any means get a bullseye rash. And mm -hmm. in that moment, you really know you have, the illness and you can get treated for it. But even people who are promptly treated and ideally treated for Lyme disease, something like 10 to 20% of them end up with ongoing symptoms. And in my case, I had a lot of the kind of confounding factors or pre-existing factors that might have made me one of those people. We don't know, but there's clearly some genetic susceptibility and other susceptibility to having ongoing problems from Lyme disease. So that's something to bear in mind, too. I I was wondering if you've read some of uh, the writing that Ross Douthat has been doing, mm. the New York Times columnist about Lyme disease and his own experience with it. Yeah. So Ross has actually become a friend, one of these ah. uh, chronic illness buddies. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I read his book, which I thought was wonderful. And I said to him, this is the first time I've heard aspects of my experience reflected back at me. I mean, it just the, our stories are really different. It was really, he found out much more quickly that he had Lyme disease. He got very sick right away, whereas I got sick over many years. Um, but it was like seeing someone speak a language I didn't know other people spoke, right? I was like, right, this uh -huh. is exactly what it was like to 
try to get better and not get better and then to have to take more antibiotics and search for more answers and read all the science. And, you know, what, what Ross says, I fundamentally agree with, which is that we, Lyme disease has become this controversial disease where many physicians will say it's clear cut. You take the antibiotics, you get totally better. But when you really dig into the science and you talk to people, it's very clear that a lot of people like Ross who get treated quickly just do not get better. And that the reasons for that are mysterious and may have to do with the bacteria persisting or the presence of a co-infection. But, you know, if we were talking about needs around long COVID, there is a real need um, to have a lot more research into and funding into what is happening to people who get really complicated tick-borne illness that doesn't go away. I mean, it, it reminds me of what you said about your, not just your biology, but your biography mm-hmm. with Lyme disease, right? How important that ends up becoming. Um, I I was reading something that he wrote in a column about what you've just referred to, this idea of science and Lyme disease. And I thought I'd share this with listeners. For chronically ill people trying desperately to get better, Actual science, the world of hypothesis, experiment, result, matters in the most urgent way. It's just that they have entered a territory where there aren't any clear authorities, any definite consensus. And so a lot of the strange things they end up doing are just a kind of homebrew versions of the scientific method. Mm. I mean, it, it. that sounds like we're for as much as science and the medical uh, community feels like they understand about Lyme disease, you're also also kind of at the fringe of medical knowledge, which is something that's hard to grasp given that it has been around and identified for so long. How do we explain yeah. that? Yeah. Well, look, I mean, I think one of the things that gets really tricky in America talking about science is that science and the history of science are two different things, right? The history of science shows that at different historical points, scientific consensus can be wrong, right? Mm-hmm. That doesn't make science wrong, right? Science is right. the process of arriving at a pretty correct framework that will apply to as many possible people as it can. As we see with the pandemic playing out, like we don't arrive there at step one, right? Science takes time. It requires reflection and self-correction and being open to new interpretations when something turns out not to be quite true the way we thought it was. And that is science, right? That, that process. I think what's happened with Lyme disease is that that process actually got interrupted. And the very early kind of set of ideas about Lyme disease got locked in place and people who questioned them got painted as I have been, I'm sure as Ross has been, as sort of, you know, patient advocates who were themselves quackish or espousing quackery. Um, You know, the people who are treating Lyme disease get painted as quacks, but the reality is much more complicated and nuanced. And when you actually report on Lyme disease, as Ross has done and as I have done for the Atlantic magazine, and you talk to scientists at different very credible, you know, creditable institutions and accredited institutions, you find that scientists themselves radically disagree about 
Lyme disease and how treatable it is in everybody. Um, and a lot of scientists have done great work showing that bacteria can persist in human bodies. And this isn't even to add in, you know, after um, a treatment of a course of, of doxycycline, which is the commonly prescribed treatment. And so there's science itself is showing us that we are not wrong to have these impressions about our illness, but somehow the discourse of science, the politics of science, the history of science has sort of locked us into this moment where to say so, as, as Ra says, is controversial and puts you in the position of being at the fringe when in fact, I don't know, I, I think logically we're not really at the fringe, if that makes sense. I, I think that is a, a really instructive way to put it because you you are reminding me that there are other diseases not well understood. I'm thinking of Epstein-Barr, where yeah. maybe it's a similar deal, where totally. it, was, it was interrupted. And that's mm-hmm. where the understanding kind of stopped. And it led to this whole constellation of things that you've just described, right? Patients who are trying to advocate looking like idiots, and it's not real, and it's all in your head. I wonder yeah. why that I mean, do, do you think there is a propensity for that to happen more often when it is when these are kind of immunologically adjacent or involved diseases and why that might be? Yeah, that's a great question. Epstein-Barr virus is a great example of another um, pathogen that we don't understand very well. So I think there's two things. I think the first is, yes, we understand less about the immune system than we do about cancer than we do about, you know, cardiac disease, right? One researcher said to me, we're at least a decade behind in our understanding of the immune system and how it drives disease. Wow. Wow. We're also seeing an uptick in all of these kind no pun intended, <laughs> in, in all these mm-hmm. kinds of immune driven diseases, partly because of environmental changes. But the other reason I think is that science and medicine in particular are inherently conservative, right, practices. And medicine is, a, let's say, an inherently conservative practice. And that's because we want medicine to be based on evidence, right? We want medical science to be given to us based on really good data. And so when you have a pathogen that is doing something to the human body, and it's really complicated, and it's going to take decades to figure out, medicine's impulse is to is not to say to patients hey i hear you that you know you got epstein barr virus and then your multiple sclerosis started but rather to say well if if that's the case why doesn't everyone have multiple sclerosis and there's no evidence and we haven't seen that right so so medicine throws up important questions that it needs to answer but in fact a huge study just showed that epstein barr virus really does trigger autoimmune disease, such as multiple sclerosis specifically. There's another study I report on that shows it is a factor in lupus. Patients have been saying this Mm. for decades, right? But they were met with a kind of shrug from medical science. And I think just understanding why that is and maybe shifting the terms of discussion are important because it's, it's okay for doctors to say we don't have that evidence yet. But I think they need to build into their medical practice, okay, we don't have that evidence, but what do we do in the interim? Here's this person who's telling me this, like, 
Maybe I should look into antivirals for that person. Maybe we look at X, Y, or Z. I don't know, right? But we need a slightly more dynamic system that's not just, we don't have the evidence yet, so therefore I'm not going to talk to you about it, right? And I do think we have to center patients' narratives more and really listen to them and look to them for clues. Yeah, I, I was just imagining that that discussion, as noted at the beginning of the discussion about how short these, you know, these appointments are with a doctor and you're, you're there trying to describe what having Epstein-Barr has meant to the rest of, you know, your other health systems or symptoms, you know, that is, that is kind of detection in the way that you did it and describe in the book in a way that I think both of us have said the medical system just does not have space for a lot of detection like, what is this? What could it be? What does it mean to your life day to day? Uh, and I guess when that happens, then you kind of, as the patient, recede back into advocating for yourself, which is viewed, what would you say? I think you use the word, sometimes you're labeled as the patient quack, mm-hmm. which is viewed pretty mm-hmm. skeptically, right, in the medical mm-hmm. community. Yeah, I mean, you've hit on so much there that's important. I think um, one thing I want to start with is you talked about instead of the doctor saying, how is this impacting your life, right? I think that's a really important thing we need to do more in chronic illness care is say to patients, how is this changing your life? What is hardest for you about these symptoms? Which symptom are you struggling with most? But instead, as you say, you get labeled the patient quack or sort of rushed out the door or told, no, Epstein-Barr can't possibly be causing your MS symptoms, et cetera, right? And so there is this fundamental and fundamentally strange, I think, distrust between doctor and patient and even antagonism at times. And one of the things I really try to account for in my book is why? How did we end up here? We didn't have to. Um, And I do think part of it is that we are not supporting our doctors the way we need to. I mean, not we individually, but our social structure, our medical system. We we need to give doctors more time with patients, that they're less mired in bureaucracy. Um, Because as you say, they need that time to take the really close patient history. I just was talking to a really innovative physician and he said, you know, the art of the patient history is being lost and Mm. we need Mm. to do that medical detective work. We need to ask a lot of questions and spend time and uncover the unexpected connection like eggs making me sick, (laughs) right? He's Mm -hmm. like, that should be part of Western medicine, but we've sort of, sped it up and turned it into, um, you know, an assembly line that makes it harder to do and offer those things. And I think that leaves doctors frustrated and that leaves patients frustrated. And so antagonism erupts instead of trust. Since you discovered what this is and you've had treatments um, and years have passed, you have two children now, your writing career has returned. You are the editor of the Yale Review. It sounds like you're leading a a busy life. And yet what I gathered from the end of the book is that you still have these mornings where you wake up to some pretty difficult symptoms. And I wondered what you tell yourself about those days. Yeah, I do. In fact, um, just on Sunday, I, I basically took my kids out to an 
the museum and I ran around with them and played with them and I got a little too cold and it just triggered this whole set of nervous system problems that I get and really wiped me out. And I had to hand them over to my husband and say, it's your turn. I've got to go lie down. And it's really disheartening. I, I will tell you, I was feeling really low about it. Like, wow, I can't even, you know, take my kids to a museum and like run in the park with them without getting sick again. Um, temporarily. But I guess the difference now is that I know it's, well, it's temporary and permanent, right? It's permanently mm, going to be yeah. like this. But each moment is temporary. And I really try for my own well-being to focus on the positive because I now can, right? Because I now have physicians and um, healthcare workers who really believe in the reality of my condition, who've helped me identify the different things that are going on. We don't know everything about it. I still have a disease that goes beyond the diagnosis, but we know enough about it that I'm empowered, I guess really is the right word here, right? It's sort of a jargony word, but it's true. Like I'm empowered to make decisions that I know will either help me get through the day or I know I can go back to the doctor and say, this is going on and we can restart a, you know, a physical therapy protocol that might help me, but I have some options and I have support. I guess that's the big difference, right? I feel seen and supported. I, I don't feel like it's easy, but I feel, mm -hmm. I no longer feel invisible. Megan, thank you. Thank you for the conversation. Thank you so much. This has been a real pleasure. I have to say. Megan O'Rourke's new book is titled The Invisible Kingdom, Reimagining Chronic Illness. Mm -hmm.